Hello, Nicholas. It's Nicola. It's nice to be able to talk to you again. Um, oh, great. Thank you so much for coming. And, and I hope we get something rather interesting out of this. No, I, I think we will, um, because... I'm very keen because we haven't actually spoken very much about how you met Dom Sylvester um, and, at the, and at that, those, that period in the beginning in 1967 when you set up the Listen Gallery. So I wondered if we could begin perhaps with um, you talking a little bit about that, about meeting Dom Sylvester, how and when you met him um, at that time. Um, you know, that's the one thing I cannot remember. <laughs> uh, but it... <laughs> I cannot remember the, the, mm. the actual moment. You know, the, the, the gallery aroused an enormous amount of curiosity when it opened in the in, 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 in April '67, and uh, artists and, and, and some people more of the sort of emerging generation, and the, the, the let, let's say that the more bohemian art world, if such a word uh, um, existed at that time, it certainly doesn't very much anymore to describe what artists do. Uh, Sylvester was definitely uh, in the category of the bohemian. Um, I think he, he, he may have come in with Bob Cobbing. That's yeah. quite likely. I think that could be Bob quite... Bob Cobbing was already uh, interested in the gallery. And, okay. Uh, he was organising... He was organising sound uh, poems with, with a group, whole group of other people down in our basement. To contextualise this, <clears throat> there were very, very few contemporary galleries in London. Uh, the ICA had just recently opened, and uh, that was a good place. But there wasn't any kind of uh, non-institutional sort of thing like Listen. And we didn't really know what Listen was anyway. Uh, we were exploring just as everybody else was exploring us. So, you know, I, I, I was extremely open to things I found interesting. Yeah. And Sylvester I found very interesting. I'm Hannah Riley, and welcome to Listen Presents On Air. Our episode today is about the life and work of Dom Sylvester Cuidard. The recording that started this podcast is part of a longer roundtable discussion that took place in March this year between Nicholas Logsdale, who's the founder of Listen Gallery, Nicholas Simpson, who is a curator and researcher at Norwich University of the Arts, and Charles Vary, who has been working on a biography of Dom Sylvester Cuidard since 2005. Today, I'm joined by Matt O'Dell, who is Listen Gallery's archivist. Uh, Matt and I worked together on a DSH show in Listen Gallery's New York space recently, and it opened on May 1st, 2018. Hi, Matt. Hi, Hannah. <laughs> How are you doing? Very good. So I thought that we could begin a little by talking just generally about Dom Sylvester Huidard, who he is, and the kind of context within which he was working. And we can also talk a bit maybe about his work. Sure. So to start with a bit of biography, um, Dom Sylvester is widely recognised as one of the leading theorists and practitioners of concrete poetry. He was born in 1924 and died in 1992. And he's firmly rooted in Listen's history. Um, Nicholas mentions that in the conversation. 
Um, he showed frequently, both formally and informally, at Liston in the 60s and early 70s. He had his first solo show held at the gallery during its inaugural year, which was in 1967. And people often refer to him with his initials, so DSH or the DOM, and that's something that he... Yeah, he had many different ways of writing, saying his name, Sylvester, Sylvester, di yeah. many different variants. And that's something that he self-coined. So these are sort of yeah. terms or letters that he used for himself. Yeah, he had many different ways of writing his name, explaining his name. Um, in most of his artworks, he would use his initials DSH. Mm -hmm. And in pretty much all of the works we exhibited in our, in our exhibition in New York have, have those initials on them. Yeah. And he also wrote about new approaches to art, spirituality and philosophy. Yeah, and collaborated with Gustav Metzger, Bob Cobbing, Yoko Ono. You know, there was, a, there was quite a following we, we established with, with following in the gallery for other artists, in particular for Sylvester, and people came to visit him on Saturday mornings. Okay. Uh, he'd, come <laughs> on the, he'd come on the train on, on Friday night, so Saturday morning would be a kind of open house at the gallery, and often people came to see Sylvester. I mean, they, they would inquire as to whether he was, when he was coming. But it's a very uh, important... generally known that he... It's a very important point that, I think. Every five yeah. or six weeks. Sorry? It's a very important point, I think, that, uh, that uh, it was a real, real meeting place at the time yes. for, for artists. You know, it, it, was, it was really alive, your gallery, and it was for, it, uh, pe people came just to, to, to meet and to, to, to just to talk yes. about what was yeah. going on around them. And it, 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 we, it was we, very we alive. Saw, um, what we would call collectors by today's standards. Yes. Uh, but it was mostly artists, art world people yeah. who, and actually I have to say that it's the best education I could have got, far best in art school, because I, I was meeting and working with people who were the real thing. And uh, Sylvester was uniquely the real thing. I mean, he was just such a, such a peculiar, and I, did you agree, Charles, to, to describe him as peculiar? A wonderful, peculiar human being. <laughs> yes, no, he, he was. And he was open to everybody and everything, although you, get, you had the feeling that he was quite detached and distant from it as well, yes. um, which maybe was his, his, his various afflictions. But I, I often wondered whether there was some... I didn't know about this, and I wondered whether there was some kind of um, affliction he had that made him different from everybody else. And now I think I know. Yes, um, I can. He also, he also used to used to have a little little leather black, brown leather suitcase that he used to hide in the potting shed in the in the, uh, in the abbey, and this contained uh, his his London his London monknick yeah. huh. uh, which was a very nice pair of uh, leather trousers and a black leather jacket to go with them, uh, and 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 some rather more fashionable shoes than the ones he walked out of the monastery with. So he, he transformed himself on the train. Yes. He'd get on the train in his monk's habit with his, his, his the big cross around his, uh, hung around his neck. And uh, he'd emerge the other end as the monk neck yeah. at Paddington Station, <laughs> carrying the little suitcase again. And, and always a briefcase as well. Yes. Had all his papers. The, the briefcase used to get called Sylvie's handbag. Oh, did it? At the monastery, apparently, by the monks. 
<laughs> so we should maybe kind of explain what Monknik means. This is also a self-prescribed name that Dom Sylvester gave himself, which was in the amalgamation of the word monk and beatnik. So he referred to himself as this, and I guess also yeah. to, to other people, it was a character that he almost embodied or... Yeah, and I, sp- I suppose, you know, it, it really sums up this physical transformation that, that he would have from when he was at the monastery in his robes to when he was in London wearing his beret, sunglasses, smoking. And it's interesting to think how he almost needed to make that transformation to be accepted by the kind of, I guess, slightly debauched London art scene at the time. Yeah, because he was also friendly with Derek Jarman. Yeah. And kind of hanging out with that... Yeah. Crowd. Although he was a bit older. He was no, a bit older. Like, no, no, Nicholas no. refers to him as like an uncle-style figure and age. Yeah. I think when we were looking for um, film footage of Dom Sylvester, the one that we found of, of the um, Royal Albert Hall, yeah. where he's sitting there and he's really sort of chain-smoking in the audience and yeah. wearing his sunglasses and yeah. kind of looking really cool. I felt like that was a quite a special moment. Yeah, it was really, exci- <laughs> it was really exciting to finally see him, like, you know, come alive after looking at his works for such a long time. Yeah. And also, the, I mean, the, the audio recordings, I think, that we've both listened to at the British Library, where yeah. he's kind of... this one where he gives a lecture on his work. And um, in that, you can sort of hear a, a difference between when I've heard him speak in those... That, the, the, the video film footage that we found of him in front of the Abbey, introducing his... Co- um, yeah, he, he he really is yeah. like a different person. And, yeah, yeah, this yeah physical change and I guess to agree it's with psychological change as well. I mean, you have to inhabit yeah different worlds. So the next extract uh, in the roundtable conversation is talking about DSH's interest in spirituality and his works. And so perhaps um, before we play this, we should talk a bit f- more formally about his works. So Dom Sylvester, I guess you could argue, is primarily known for his typewriter works, which comprise of abstract shapes and lettering. And each shape, line or letter that has been inscribed onto the paper has manifested using a typewriter, specifically an Olivetti letter of 22. And um, we've talked a lot about why he used that particular model of typewriter and, and yeah. it's to do with its size, its portability. Yeah, it's been described as, as you know, the equivalent of a laptop today. It was very light and yeah. he, he would often make these um, artworks when he was staying with friends or travelling. So, you know, it was very much a portable machine that he could take with him. Also, I mean, also like within the works, like the, the, the letters that appear are not capitalised, uh, grammar is not utilised and I guess the typographic style of the letters holds equal importance as the meaning yeah. And the cadence of the words, which is kind of very much in keeping with concrete poetry. Yeah. So these these typewriter works, which are known as typestracts, um, and it was actually Dom Sylvester's friend Edward Morgan who coined this term, which is a combination of the word typewriter and abstract. It's made with just ubiquitous ink ribbons, which are blue, black, and red. Yeah. Yeah. We've seen one green. Yeah. Work, but that's the only one I've seen. Yeah, that's the only one I've seen. Across that's green. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the way he made them was to often rotate the paper wi- within the typewriter. Yeah. So, he, you know, he could create many different patterns, many different densities. And I think you really need to see them in real life to realise how unbelievably intricate some of them are. Yeah. They're, they're incredibly beautiful, very accurate. It's almost impossible to imagine how, how he made them. And there are... There's, we sort of talk about there being an original and there are 
copies as well. Yeah. And how does that work? That's so he would, you know, use carbon paper beneath the the top sheet of paper, and the pressure would would cause the impression on the sheet beneath. So often he would have like two or three copies of of the same work, and apparently he he would consider them all to be as important as each other. They they weren't seen as copies by him, mm. and we've also seen examples where he would type over the top of copies in a different colour to create a completely unique unique work mm. there is that one work that's in our show i think it's called untitled but there's um kind of looks like a architectural structure that's protruding through a cloud yeah that's made from at signs yeah and that's a a, a carbon yeah. version and you can see how hard like the, the paper's almost slightly torn so you really yeah. get the sense of how hard he's pressing the keys to make the impression it's yeah absolutely it's very like it's, it's very beautiful but at the same time quite intense it's kind of a yeah. A real like marking of the page. Yeah, the the, yeah. the characters are almost smudged so much mm. it's become so dense. I was thinking back to those early shows um, with you with in in the sixties with Dom Sylvester, where still the spirituality was foregrounded in the shows in in the you know in your publicity around the shows and things. And I think that lots of newer curators are coming through and very interested in his work and how it's actually in dialogue with Eastern thought and trying to reassess that period in London from the late 60s, early 70s, and those kind of entangled histories with international artists, particularly um, how sort of that Western idea is engaged with Eastern art at that time. Um, so I think that's interesting that, you know, he's be again coming to the fore because of the spirituality as well and the interest in that kind of dialogue between the East and the West. And, I mean, Dom Silverstone, of course, he he was um, aware before anybody else in the Catholic Church and probably in any um, Western uh, spiritual traditions of the uh, significance of the problems that were, were, were faced by... Uh, the encounter between the East and West. And um, he'd, of course, had spent two years in the East mm. in the mid-1940s with the Intelligence Corps. And so he had had a, some sense of the East. And he started to get interested in Buddhism then. Mm. And he's interested in... Um, was when he, Charles, was he a spy? No. Oh, <laughs> I want him to be a spy. <laughs> I'm afraid not. I'm afraid he didn't. He he wasn't entangled enough to, oh. with, with with them all to do that. I mean, the, the intelligence corps actually is just is part was part of the army. He was he worked for the worked for the British Army, but but the work he did was um, sitting intercepting probably probably mostly intercepting information from uh, from Russian sources about what the aeroplanes were doing over the East. So was he working with code? Um, I don't think he directly worked with code, actually. Um, mm. he, he, he was in, brought in later than that because he, he, was, uh, he was only 17 when the war started. And um, most of this code-breaking was done in the earlier years, I think. Okay. Uh, but right. well, maybe, but obviously it did continue. But he didn't get involved in in uh, in that. Although um, I, I did meet somebody else who he knew from Guernsey, who also went into the intelligence corps, who who explained to me that of course they got taken on because they were bilingual and they needed bilingual people. 
um, rather than for, for his okay. intellect. But there are codes in the type structs, aren't there? There oh, is, yes. yeah, and that's what's so joyful about them. There's a lot of there's a lot personal of codes between the recipient of the work yes. and him himself, which perhaps only the receiver would understand or have take you know take a little while to untangle as yeah. uh, as for a viewer, which is which is again makes the work so personal in the execution at, the, at that first in the moment of making, as he kept saying, the moment of making was the most important thing. Well, also, also, you know, Jean Leighton would call, call it the visuals, the visuals as opposed to the meaning and the content. And, mm. and in that respect, Sylvester was a master of all three. Yes. You know, I think that... The, the visuals are part of the meaning, <laughs> actually, Rich, uh, um, Nicholas. Sorry? Uh, the visuals um, contain the meanings. You know, they're part of the communication. Uh, he, he, his communicating wasn't wasn't limited to, to just to words, just to the language no, spoken. It, it was the communication oh, came just as much from the visuals. Um, so it's, this is an interesting point that Nicola mentions the idea of personal codes and that the receiver of the work would understand what they received. Because, so, I mean, Dom Sylvester made a lot of type tracks and laminates for his friends. Kind of often they're dedicated to people or they say... Yeah, they he reference was, people and... You know, he said that he was kind of quite unprecious about them. He would he would just give them away to people and trade with people. Mm. And a lot of them have inscriptions or a particular aspect of them that only that receiver would, would understand. And, I mean, we have some in our collection which are inscribed to people we don't know who they are. Like Tonk. Or Tonk, yeah, yeah who we think may have been a poet. And there's... Um, I've seen in the Bob Cobbing archive letters that DSH has written to Bob Cobbing that in the top right-hand corner have isolated elements that look like type tracks on their own. So that these works within a letter that... That, right. that he's written to Bob Cobbing and they're incredibly interesting. Yeah. So sort of, um, you have this, you have like some type tracks that are dedicated to people yeah. or friends, but then they're also being incorporated into his day-to-day -day correspondence, if you like, about... Yeah, and I think when you look at our show in New York that we put together, when we tried to, you know, curate it, it's, um, you know, every time you look at a work, you kind of see something different in it. Mm. They're incredibly complex. So it's it's really fascinating trying to sort of decode them in a way. Yeah. Also kind of uh, religious saints. Like there was that, there, are, there are actually a lot of people. Yeah. Kind of, you know, the, the work that, when he talks about St. Agatha and... Um, I can't think now of other ones. I think because he was, you know, researching and reading so much as part of his um, religious life that all of that was then brought into the type tracks, into his practice. So, so he mentions all those saints, all the, yeah. all the philosophers, all the, you know, theorists he's reading. But also um, the news and how the news, yeah. mean, like, literally like newspaper headlines, um, yeah. begin to kind of creep into the work. Was that the one work about the don't forget to use the post-mortem code. Yeah. In the year that that was made, that there was a whole... Yeah, lots of the... ...campaign about using the postcode. Yeah, and lots of the laminated works, like the poems, are taken from tabloid newspapers, so some of the subjects are kind of um, slightly risque subjects and... and but <laughs> 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 um, well, we actually haven't talked about what a laminate is. So a, a laminate, laminate is... Also a concrete poem, but it's formally very different. It's comprised of collaged elements. So it's letters or words cut out from newspapers, 
um, and then arranged together on coloured card and then laminated together using plastic contact yeah. sheets. Yeah. And uh, often within them you see bits of dust that have been trapped in them or they have... There's one work in our show that has a, a cowpole capsule that, yeah. you, that you give to kids where you knock the top off and the medicine comes out and there's things like that um, sandwiched in them. Yeah. Yeah. And they, they feel um, a lot more... Immediate, I guess, in some way, like how they. Yeah, I think they're more experimental as well. Yeah. All right, so we should go on to the next extract, which talks about Dom Sylvester's thoughts on making work and exhibiting. It's very odd to know. I remember very well that it was it was really quite difficult to be in his head and know what he would be interested in in attending. And he was very particular and, and very dismissive at the same time. He wasn't actually terribly interested in his own exhibitions. Mm. You, know, you, you would think that with all his activity and contacting people and so on and so forth, it was out of interest. It was not out of self-promotion. Yes. And I don't think he had an ounce of self-promotion in his body. Um, if that makes any sense. It does make um, sense. He was just thinking. He was just incredibly interested in things yeah. when he was interested, and in people and what they did. Um, yes. and, I think uh, I think that he I, I think that he saw exhibiting something as part of the work itself. You know, it was a necessary part of the work. So it wasn't yeah, it yeah. wasn't an added thing at all. It wasn't or it wasn't even a climactic thing. Yeah. It was just part of the work being exhibited. We tried to. Um, develop a better system of displaying the, the type tracks than the system we had, which was just, you know, kind of boring, putting them in a frame, frame with a mount or on a mount. And, I mean, Matt, Matt knows about this because he, he's got, he's got uh, one or two examples where we, we worked with a designer to design uh, a, two sheets of perspex with tiny little bolts in the corner. Okay. With a... With a um, a, a an opaque ground with, with a clear sheet of perspex in front. And uh, th- this was one of quite a number of attempts to get him interested in finding a way to display them. And this is the one that interested him most. Mm. But he actually wasn't really that interested. You know, I was always, at that time, trying to find a way to work me to work with the artist on something to do with the work or making the work or whatever. Mm. And uh, he, he didn't really respond to that. Whereas Ken Cox, of course, was quite the opposite. Yeah. And Ken Cox did respond to it. We, we made this work called Sun Cycle. Yes. And there were other things in the yeah. pipeline. Uh, and then he died. Yes. So, yeah. Very sadly, he was a wonderful man. Yes, he was. Yeah, his work's wonderful. The balloons, they're just beautiful work mm. yeah I mean I certainly got the impression that Dom Sylvester didn't really care what happened to the type tracks after he'd made them I mean so much of his writing is actually about that moment of making and beyond that moment of mm. making and that's why the date's always so significant everything's dated not in sense of a record but because that was the moment of making mm. and I think if he would have been mm. wanting to be more accurate about even time I think always the time time's very important actually although we talk about the space yes. of the work I think the time of the work's very important too and that's yes. why that date is 
is a way of recording every, that sense. Every moment of time is unique and, yeah. and, and, and different and separate and, and actually non-existent. It's the non-existence of it's it. It's a non-existent, well. non-existent yeah. instant. That instance of of that type track is and no longer existent. No longer, it no longer exists. As, as yeah. in the flow of time, it it it, it, it both, the flow of time will take only take sort of emanations of the work on the the the, the framework of the work, the skeleton of the work, mm. perhaps even gradually disappearing into the, to nothing, I from nothing to nothing. It well. is. Mm. So that's, this is very interesting. I, I get the impression that that um, they were seldom left. They were seldom. Uh, or, let's put it another way. That they were generally made in one session. Um, yes. I seem to remember talking to him about this, but he was awfully vague about it. That that um, they were done in one session of intense concentration. Yeah. And and. Uh, um, and that's the end of that. So I think this idea of time that Nicola picks up on is a, a re- really a crucial component in his work, and it's something that I keep returning to, and I think that we actually mentioned it in our forward for the catalogue that we've made um, for the show. And I, I, I guess why I kind of keep sort of thinking about it and returning to it is it this obsession with presence and time and presence also in the in the fact that he dates and signs every work, pretty much every work. So the, the the date, the month, the year, and then his initials. Yeah, and this obsession with presence, it kind of feels like a particularly contemporary concern. And that's in part where I find my affinity with his work. Well, there's a whole series of work that's sort of based around shamanism, which is yeah. revisited. And, and there's some very wonderful works that develop from quite simplistic kind of sense of like um, the sort of spine as a central pole um, with the chakras and things to very much more complicated work to do with shamanism which sort of go from about 66 Mm. to 69 and then there's also as you say other sort of a vocabulary of geometry isn't there that's constantly revisited and reworked but but always with as you say a nudge or a slight inflection or there's been another text he's read or perhaps he's spoken to a different theological figure or he's met a different artist so there's always that shift of influence which can often can be located with biography actually who he was with and who he's talking to and and that brings a new energy to as you say these repetitive forms which are never repeated you know they are the especially those jacob's ladders which go all the way through um which i think is his go-to form of that sense of what a type tract is it is that sense of a communication between the inner and the outer and it becomes it's on this ladder it's on this kind of tantric staircase or you know jacob's ladder or something it's yeah. what's called a he calls them space probes yeah. <laughs> in that kind of groovy yeah. 60s language a space probe <laughs> But you're right, you know, there is this development, but then a return at the same time. It's funny, I had, I had breakfast with Jane Clark this morning and we were talking about Gothic cathedrals and um, the light in Gothic cathedrals and how it works. And we were talking about the changes that have been made in Chartres Cathedral. And I can't help but feel that in a, that, that in a sense with um, Silverstone's work, um, it, it it almost seems to belong to the same world as the cathedral, as the great Gothic cathedral, you know, that it's it's got such complexity and such immediacy and such, uh, and it, it's not a thing. You can't see what it is. It's so complex and it's constantly speaking to you and it's got all the symbols of life in it. And uh, it's a remarkable, 
treatment that he gives to it. See, I see them the opposite. I see them as really tiny and intricate, like Hindu tantric drawings that folded up and put in your back pocket. I see them as miniature. Yes. As miniature objects, miniature, actually. A very but, but, intimate but very, miniature object. Very total <laughs> and very complete miniature objects. Yeah. Very complete. I've got um, yeah. each one is like uh, a world yeah. of, of meaning, actually. Definitely. It, it, uh, mm. I'm probably exaggerating by greatly. <laughs> it's just a stupid idea. It's not at all. <laughs> Listen Presents On Air is recorded and edited by Henry Law. The title music is written by Victor M. Jakeman. To find out more about Listen Presents and to hear about upcoming episodes of On Air, sign up to the gallery's newsletter on our website at listengallery.com. Thank you to Nicola Simpson, Charles Berry, Nicholas Logsdale, Matt O'Dell, Alison Thorpe and Zoe Anspach. See you next time for Listen Presents On Air. Bye.